Hey friends, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 42 of the Popecast, the podcast about popes for people who love history and a good story, but have neither the time nor the interest to pick up dry, dusty history books. Our episode this week is another interview I did with John DeRosa, who graciously had me on as a guest once again of his Classical Theism podcast. It's a show that is all about defending Catholic Christian ideas in conversation and has all sorts of uh, illustrious guests, the likes of Trent Horn, Dr. Ed Fazer, Jimmy Aiken, uh, Gomer from Catching Foxes, and somehow <laughs> yours truly. I'm, in any case, I'm grateful to John for having me on the show again. Uh, this time to talk about a couple of additional common papal difficulties. The first time I was on, we talked about Popes Honorius I and Liberius and their respective papal scandals. But this time the topic is the the Council of Nicaea, which was called by an emperor and not a pope, and, and how and, and why that's still legitimate. And then Pope John XXII, who got in some doctrinal hot water during his papacy. In any case, it was it was another great conversation, and we hope you like it. Thanks, as always, to new and old listeners alike. And we'll be back next time with our regularly scheduled papal bio programming. I'm joined again by Matthew Sewell, the host of the PopeCast, a podcast about papal history and author of the Popes in a Year daily email series. He also occasionally writes at the National Catholic Register, and by day, Matthew works at Flocknote to help parishes and dioceses build a more connected church. Matthew, his wife, and their infant son, Leo, make their home in Spokane, Washington. Matthew Sewell, welcome back to the Classical Theism Podcast. Yeah, thanks again for having me on, John. So last time on the show, we were talking about Popes Liberius and Honorius. I'm curious, what have you been up to since then as far as Catholic projects or research? Yeah, let's see. So I think we did that last interview around October or so, right? So since then, in terms of projects, it's mainly been, um, I think, the 10 or so new PopeCast episodes, including one most recently on Pope St. John Paul II to popular demand, as you might imagine. So um, of course, we have to do him in like installments. I think it'll take about three to do justice to his biography. And on that note, I have to apologize to all my listeners, too, because what's been going on most recently, I know we talked about this before we started recording, um, and the reason for almost a, a two-month hiatus in new uh, episodes is uh, the coronavirus, obviously, and our family moving across town here where we live in Spokane, and then my day job at Flocknote has kept us uh, more busy than any of us could have imagined for the past four or five weeks. It turns out when churches can't meet in person, they all want a way to email and text each other, right? So, uh, so it's mostly been unpacking. Sadly, um, nothing too super exciting. Unpacking boxes the last little while, but um, still finding out to finding time to nerd out on all things Pope, as you might say. So, I finished um, George Weigel's newest book, "The Irony of Modern Catholic History," <clears throat> which was basically a story of the of the papacies for the last two hundred fifty years. So, an especially good book for a Pope nerd like me. But I'd, I'd highly recommend that for anybody who has a an armchair interest in Catholic history. But yeah, other than that, just trying to ramp back up and get back up into um, turning out, yeah, Pope bios. Fantastic. Well, no, I'll have to link to that that book. I have not heard of that one from George Weigel. So I'll link to that in the show notes. And, uh, you know, I give you a lot of credit because the coronavirus is stressful and anxiety inducing enough. And the fact that you had to go through a move, I've heard like my wife and I are in an apartment, but I've heard moving into a house is like one of the most stressful things that uh, people can go through. So I'm glad that that's over and you're able to kind of get back more to normal. And yeah, yeah. So very good. So we're going to be dealing... Um, 
with a couple more topics today because people are pretty much familiar with Bible difficulties. You know, there's been books written to help explain problematic passages or apparent contradictions in the Bible. Um, yet just because there's Bible difficulties, this is how I like to set this up. Just because there's Bible difficulties, it doesn't mean the Bible is false or that it's not intended by Christ or that it's not inspired. And similarly, just because there's papal difficulties, it doesn't mean that the institution of the papacy is false or not intended by Christ and so forth. So all that being said, we're going to get into some more specifics, but I wanted to ask you, if you had to make a list of difficulties for the papacy, what would you put on that list? Yeah, that's a good question. So off the top of my head, obviously, there's infallibility. That's the, the, the big bugaboo that comes to mind. If there's one thing that's cited more than anything in terms of non-Catholics who maybe think anecdotally about the church or, you know, knew a Catholic once or their grandma told them that all Catholics go going to hell or, or whatever, right? Or people who are just beginning to kind of inquire about it, I would say infallibility tops the list, right? Related to that maybe would be the idea that a Catholic has to do and believe all that a pope says or does. So even in terms of like personal preference, philosophical or liturgical outlook and, you know, things like that. So that may, may um, be even kind of a split in terms of difficulty between Catholics and non-Catholics alike. So I guess maybe some context for that. So, of course, the Pope, as the catechism says, the quote is, uh, as pastor of the entire church, the Pope has full supreme and universal power over the whole church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered that might make, you know, Americans like you and I shake in our boots, you know, rugged individualism and all that. So that can sound like kind of a dark and scary thing, but there's a couple of things in terms of context to keep in mind with that. So one, the Pope's authority over the church pertains primarily to, to matters of faith and discipline. So the power of binding and loosing that Christ gave to Peter and the apostles. So as the catechism, uh, it quotes Vatican II's um, Lumen Gentium, when it says that the Pope, quote, is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity, both of the bishops and the whole company of the faithful, end quote. So that's all well and good, but of course we're not bound to like chocolate ice cream or pizza with pineapple on it just because the Pope says so. Um, so yeah, so there's that. We have to you know, always believe everything that the Pope ever says or does, whatever, right? Another difficulty might, uh, again, related to infallibility, uh, in part, the example we'll talk about here in a bit, is the history of the church and her leaders, right? So, I mean, shoot, the, what about those Medicis and Borgias? You know, the, weren't there orgies in the Vatican during the Renaissance or popes who had people killed or popes who had mistresses and had 12 illegitimate children by 12? You know, I mean, I don't know if that's actually true, but you, you never know. They, nothing new under the sun. So, and the, and the papacy is no exception. So how could the papacy, a person might ask, be something to be believed in, to be divinely protected when guys like that can be at the top, right? But with that objection, it always serves as a good reminder in cases like that, that Jesus himself chose Judas. This is also, I mean, very timely because we're recording this on Easter Tuesday. Um, Jesus chose Judas as one of the, the first bishops of the church. So not to mention that, that Peter ended up committing a worse sin than Judas did. The only difference is that, you know, Peter asked for forgiveness and Judas didn't. So at times, at different times, the apostles were prideful, arrogant, self-seeking. Just, I mean, just read the gospels, right? The first Pope was arguably the least qualified and the worst one because he denied Jesus in the flesh. So it's always good to remember that the church, though divine in origin, I guess, is run by humans and has been for 2,000 years. So that the, one of my favorite kind of anecdotes from church history on that note is from around the French Revolution when Napoleon said to, I think it was Pope Pius VII's uh, right-hand man, uh, I forget the name of the cardinal, 
uh, but that he would destroy the church. Napoleon would destroy the church. And the cardinal just laughed at him and said, if 1,700 years of bishops and priests haven't been able to do it, you certainly won't be able to, right? Um, so, yeah, that would be like my short list of, of – No, I think that's a, that's a helpful breakdown because you're kind of – we're kind of looking at the way I heard you say it, almost like three categories. Like we have like in, issues related to papal infallibility and, you know, whether – first of all, whether that is a doctrine that tr- Christians should subscribe to. And, you know, some historical issues with that. Then we have like difficulties with the levels of authority of of papal teaching and like whether everything is issued at the same level of authority. And no, we don't believe that. Like you said, there can be different preferences and different levels. And then third is like the moral issues of um, like popes behaving so poorly. And we've done some episodes on those first two things, like the foundations of the doctrine in scripture. So I'll link to that in the show notes. We had Father Pablo Gadens kind of walk through the scriptural evidence for the papacy. And we've had uh, Jimmy Aiken on to talk through about the different levels of authority. So I'll be linking to that. And then last time we had you on, we dealt with two specific issues, Pope Liberius and Pope Honorius, who people bring up and they're like, well, hey, wait a minute, if infallibility is a thing, what about these two cases? So in that same vein, we're going to be looking at two additional historical difficulties today, one surrounding the Council of Nicaea, and then the second one with uh, Pope John the Twenty Second. So first, let's go to the Council of Nicaea, um, which has some difficulties surrounding it. But just tell us, what was the council and why was it important? Yeah, so uh, we're talking about the first Council of Nicaea, right, in 325. So that's what we're talking about here. There was a second Council of Nicaea, hence the, the first, right? Uh, why Pope Francis and Pope Francis the first. So the, the second council in Nicaea for context, it happened 450 years later, covered the iconoclast heresy, the, the heretical banning of um, holy images. The first council of Nicaea was the very first ecumenical council in, the, in church history, um, 325. So we, we uh, armchair Catholics or, or just, you know, regular non-church history nerds like me and John will know the council of Nicaea or know that, that word for, Two primary reasons. So the Nicene Creed, or the Niceno-Constantinopolitan, the super fancy title uh, creed, but the Nicene Creed that we say after the after um, the gospel and the uh, at every Sunday Mass, uh, and then secondly, uh, for anybody who follows Catholic memes, will know that um, the legendary story of Saint Nicholas, like the Saint Nick, uh, supposedly punching Arius, the heresy. Uh, which or the, the the heretic who who um, was kind of the central figure of the Council of Nicaea, punching him because he was, you know, a dirty heretic or whatever. So um, the the Council of Nicaea was called by Emperor Constantine to sort out the heresy that Arius was promulgating. Arius was a was a Eastern patriarch uh, who was promulgating the false belief that that Christ was a mere man. So we're downplaying the divinity, saying that he's not really the, the divinely uh, the divine son of God, you know, begotten from all ages, the whole thing. Right. Um, and it also, uh, as an aside, it also de- determined the official dating of, of Easter as well. All right. Very good. Well, and th- as you can say, or you kind of led into there, there are definitely some issues surrounding it, you know, pretty controversial. Um, I want to just throw a couple things at you because some are going to say, well, Hey, wait a minute. This is, doesn't even seem like a valid ecumenical council since it was called by the emperor as you just said, and and the Pope wasn't even there. Wait a minute, as Catholics, how can we consider this an ecumenical, ecumenical council in light of the fact that the emperor called it and the Pope wasn't even there? What would you say about that? Yeah, so the, the catechism and canon law are always trusty sources for, for stuff like this. So we already touched on the authority of the Pope just a minute ago, how he exercises the binding and loosing granted by Christ in communion with all the bishops throughout the world. So in that same section of the catechism, specifically 
uh, paragraph 884 for anybody who 884 for anybody who wants to go look that up. The Catechism quotes canon law by saying uh, by saying that quote the College of Bishops exercises power over the universal church in a solemn manner in an ecumenical council, but there never is an ecumenical council which is not confirmed or at least recognized as such by Peter's successor. End quote. So. To be clear, the Code of Canon Law does now state in Canon 338 that it's, uh, quote, it is for the Roman pontiff alone to convoke an ecumenical council, preside over it uh, personally or through others, or uh, transfer, suspend, or dissolve a council into approve its decrees, right? Uh, but it's been a long 2,000 years. Canon Law hasn't always existed. Uh, but then more practically, there's, you know, we have only in the last 50 years been able to fly great distances in a few hours or a day. Um, so the difficulty of travel and then oftentimes the age or health or other responsibilities of the Pope, some combination of those things, haven't always allowed him just practically to be physically present. So the Pope usually always will send legates to the council, uh, ambassadors, to be there as the Pope. Uh, but that bit in the catechism marks that the, the crucial clarification is that a Pope doesn't necessarily – have to be at the ecumenical council for it to be legit, right? So it's it's decrees just had to be approved as an ecumenical council by the Pope. So he has to officially say, this is an ecumenical council. I approve the decrees uh, after the fact, even for it to have that, that staying power. And so as a, an example of this, we actually talked about this the last time I was on, um, a particular aspect of this um, principle was the issue of Pope Honorius I being condemned by the sixth ecumenical council for being a, a bloody heretic, right? Uh, though the council fathers used the strongest possible language in their decrees, so they met. Uh, pope Saint Agatho was the pope at the time. He actually died uh, somewhere between uh, when the council ended and when they sent the decree back to Rome. Uh, but the council fathers wrote and said, "He's a heretic. We condemn him." Blah blah blah, all that sort of thing. And then when they sent the decrees to Pope Saint Leo II, when he reviewed the canons of the council. He said he revised that section before approving them and only said that Honorius was condemned for his inaction in combating the particular heresy that they were um, they were uh, dressing him down for, but not for officially promulgating the heresy itself. So so Leo said, here's the decrees from this this ecumenical council. It's not going to count until I approve it, until I approve the decrees. Right. So um, so the Pope doesn't have to be there. He just has to say he just has to uh, sign off and give his wax papal seal on uh on the decrees of a council all right very good and i'll link to that uh previous episode if people want to get more details so you know what's this honorius issue and uh what were the different views on that so we can link to that previously the episode we did so did do you think that happened with nicaea though that the pope sent his legates and then he approved you know the canons and the decrees of the council and that's why we can still consider it you know an ecumenical a council approved by the pope i just want to make sure that's clear yeah yeah definitely i think there was a there was an additional wrinkle with the sixth ecumenical council that that saint agatho died so the the pope was and it was probably you know inspired by the holy spirit that there was this thing where some of the bishops were you know enraged at this former pope who i think it was 50 or 60 years ago that he had or previously that he had lived uh, but they were saying you know he's a heretic and all this sort of thing um, but not really understanding the ramifications. So maybe the Holy Spirit protected the church by letting St. Agatha die, uh, calling him home, and then having them having to send it back to Rome because the, the previous pope, when it was convoked, was dead. And so the new pope had to had to sign off on it. So for, for Nicaea, um, yeah, I mean, the, the legates were there typically— 
from my understanding, it's been that the legates act with the full authority of the Pope to sign it off. Um, they take it back to Rome just to make sure everything's hunky-dory because, you know, all sorts of things can happen um, in the medieval and ancient church as we, as any person um, who's read any bit of history knows, right? But, um, but yeah, basically. All right, very good. Well, that's, no, it's helpful uh, distinctions there to know that we still have, um, you know, in the Catholic tradition, we have, you know, some nuances and, and ways to make these distinctions and still consider this, you know, the first ecumenical council, um, even though, uh, you know, it was called by the emperor, as you said, it still falls under um, the full authority of the Pope. He sent his legates there and approved it uh, and so forth. And we can get into the historical weeds for those who want more. But I want to turn to a second issue, um, which is Pope John the Twenty Second. And so before we get into the issue surrounding him, just tell us, you know, who was this pope? Give us a little historical context of his papacy. Yeah, so Pope John XXII was a Frenchman uh, who reigned as pope for about 18 years in the early 1300s, the early 14th century. Uh, There's a couple of things he's most famous for, particularly he canonized St. Thomas Aquinas. uh, And then also he actually likely composed the uh, Anima Christi prayer that's typically actually attributed to St. Ignatius of Loyola. Not many people know that. Um, so the uh, soul of Christ sanctify me that, you know, the whole, the animal Christian prayer. So the one that we all know was actually composed by St. John the 23rd or Pope John the 22nd, excuse me. I, when I was typing my notes out for this, I can't tell you how many times I typed John the 23rd and then deleted the last. Anyways, uh, I have to tell you, whenever I was Googling this guy, I was Googling Pope John the 22nd, like with the Roman numerals, and I kept getting tons of results for John the 23rd. So it is a little bit challenging. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. So anyways, John the 22nd was also the second pope of the Avignon papacy. So there was the period of 70-ish years in the 14th century where the popes actually resided not in Rome, but in Avignon, France. There, uh, there was lots of reasons why. But mainly it was due to, you know, French interest in controlling the papacy and all of this drama. Uh, but then also the Italians not liking the French popes. And so Rome was a dangerous place. And it was just, you know, a big to do. So it's seven, uh, 70, uh, 70 years. He was the second one and longest serving of those Avignon popes. Another fun fact about that, I think it was Gregory the Eleventh. Anybody who knows the story about St. Catherine of Siena. Uh, so five popes after John the 22nd was the guy that Catherine of Siena wrote to saying basically, hey, grow a pair and go back to Rome where you belong because the Pope doesn't belong in Avenue in France. The Pope belongs in Rome where St. Peter died. Right. Anyways. So a, a side story that's always really entertaining. So uh, during this time, the war between the Italian and the French Cardinals was actually so bad that it took over two years, I think two years, three months and four days or something like that to elect John after Clement V died. So the first Avignon Pope, the guy who moved to Avignon died Two years passed, which is crazy because the Italians and the French hated each other so much. A lot of them refused to be, um, refused to even have a conclave. So all of the, the kings and um, uh, from the surrounding areas were trying to kind of rally the troops and uh, help them have an election. Anyway, so so he eventually got elected, uh, and then in any case, he was he was apparently both a prolific writer and an able administrator who worked pretty efficiently to to reorganize different parts of the church. So apparently the um, the papal court was pretty decadent in those days, and so there were lots of abuses and nepotism, and John wasn't uh, innocent of any of those, uh, but it's, you know, mostly boring stuff. So he was, you know, kind of rearranged the, the administration, but there were a few exciting bits, and one of those <laughs> will be the one that, that we're going to talk about. But um, the first couple, so one was having to deal with Louis of Bavaria. He was a German king who was, who was a perpetual thorn in John's side for almost all of his 18 years as pope. And then another, the second uh, exciting bit was this extreme splinter group 
of the Franciscans that he had to deal with called the, the spiritualists. Uh, and they took a really super duper intensely rigorous view of, of poverty and penitential practices so much that it, it bordered on um, heresy just because they, they misinterpreted, you know, the, the words of Jesus, and all this sort of thing um, among other disciplinary issues. But the two of those actually came to a head, um, which was the, um, the toughest part for John to, to deal with was uh, Louis actually disliked John so much that he, that he propped up uh, an antipope from the spiritualists in Rome uh, named, I think Nicholas V was the antipope's name uh, around 1328, but it thankfully, you know, fizzled out within a few years, but those are kind of the two most exciting bits. And then uh, lastly, John the 22nd, he actually may well have been the second oldest Pope ever uh, at the time of his oh, death. Yeah. But um, so I don't, I'm not sure why. I think it's probably just like dating and accuracy or something. But the the list of oldest popes at death starts. It's 1334 and after. And John the 22nd died in 1334. So he's kind of left off the list for some reason. But he was around 70 to 72 years old at his election. Served for 18 years. So it put him around his late 80s, maybe even early 90s. And for context, Leo the 13th is the oldest pope to ever die, or the oldest pope at death. He was 93 when he died in 1903. John Paul II was 84, uh, and Pope Francis is currently 83. So imagine a pope seven years older than, than Pope Francis in uh, 700 years ago. So, um, yeah, super old guy tottering around Rome. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, again, it just seems like an inconsistency, which is kind of a bummer, but he might have been, you know, one of the oldest popes uh, in history. Very well. No, that is actually really interesting. A lot of interesting stuff. It sounds like he actually had a lot of enemies during during <laughs> his uh, papacy in his life, with, which might be relevant to something we talk about in a second, because I want to ask you, some will say that he clearly erred as pope in one of his teachings. So maybe tell us about that and how can Catholics approach the situation of apparent error in what Pope John the 22nd said. Yeah, so John the 22nd is famously known for having held a, a controversial belief about the beatific vision. So the beatific vision being as the Catholic Encyclopedia defines it as the immediate knowledge of God which the angelic spirits and the souls of the just humans uh, enjoy in heaven. So once we die, we see God, right? Um, if we if we die in a state of grace. So John appears to have argued at different points in his life, including even before he became Pope, that those who died in communion with God still wouldn't see the, the, the beatific vision until the last judgment, so the end of time. So, right, quick, uh, quick and dirty, you know, description of, of what happens after we die. Our soul goes to heaven because the world is still ending. Jesus comes back the second time around, and then we're reunited with our resurrected bodies, new heavens, new earth, the whole, the whole bit, right? So John's saying... We don't see God after we die. Uh, let me just, sorry, just to quick clarify, yeah, yeah. I know this might muddy it a little bit, but just so people are with us, you're saying souls that die purified in the state of grace, or that after they undergo any final purification of purgatory, they go to see the beatific right. vision. It's not automatic. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of us are probably, <laughs> right. to, you know, thanks be to God for, for that purgation. But we're saying the ones who either die purified or after they undergo that final purification, they see God. They don't have to wait until the end of the age to see the beatific vision. Right. Is that, do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's, okay. a, that's a good clarification. Yeah. So to simplify it, people go to heaven, see God. Right. That's that's what the church has taught. So John was saying basically that that doesn't happen. So we're like in this weird kind of limbo state. Apparently, was the is the understanding of what he supposedly believed was that we have to wait still until Jesus comes again. Right. Um, so. A few things to keep in mind with this, though. We certainly do have historical proof of John the 22nd having believed and and taught something contrary 
to what the church is, is currently understood. Um, but the, the teaching on that, so what we just talked about, what we understand it to be now, uh, the teaching on the beatific vision up to that point in the church had yet to be officially promulgated infallibly, right? So the, uh, and John the 22nd made no attempt to do so. So this particular piece of dogma, as we know, the, the church doesn't create new things. I mean, um, certain other non-Christian denominations may invent doctrines based on, you know, the, the times, but the Catholic church does not do that. When it defines a dogma, it's not inventing something. It's just, okay, we've reached the fullest understanding. We've, we've uh, walked all the way around this and understood it completely. So we're just going to define it. Boom. And say, this is, there's no, there's no other, um, there's no other, no other understanding to be had. Right. So it wasn't actually until John's immediate successor, Benedict XII, I think it was Benedictus Deus was the name of the, the document, um, that the teaching was addressed in a papal encyclical and, and kind of defined fully. And then in addition to that, in part due to the widespread controversy that the Pope's, you know, uh, the Pope's opponents stirred this up in order to discredit him. So um, John, thankfully, eventually, you know, backed down, made it easy for us historical commentators, armchair commentators. Um, he backed down from the belief before his death and, and basically said um, that as long as the Holy See had not given it a decision, uh, he wrote to, to King Philip IV, uh, theologians enjoy perfect, uh, enjoyed perfect freedom in the matter is what he wrote. And then a month after that, so that was November 1333, year before his death, uh, a month later, December 1333, he, uh, theologians in Paris consulted and concluded the same belief that we know now. But in addition to that, they also affirmed that what the Pope was teaching was his own personal opinion. And then they also petitioned the Pope to, to confirm their decision officially, right? So then in January, the, the month after that, of 1334, uh, John himself, it was pretty soon before his death. I'm not sure exactly the date. I don't remember the date that he died in 1334. But he convened a commission pretty soon before he died to study the church fathers on the question and then even proclaimed explicitly, I think, in this consistory, in this group of, of whoever was gathered, that he, did, he didn't intend to teach anything contrary to the deposit of faith. So his intent was true. And then he declared his belief in the immediate beatific vision for those who reach heaven um, following death. So Another another close call, but I guess the Holy Spirit wins again, right? Very good. No, I think that's a. It's a. Uh, I'm going to throw us a little curveball in a second and, and give a possible alternative account. But I think it's a nice um, way that we can reconcile this. One, we have that he wasn't formally promulgating this teaching, right? He was just as a private theologian, or perhaps in his homilies, he was expressing something. And the second aspect of that is he was expressing something or talking about something that had not yet been formally defined. So it's not like as if the church had defined this as something that needs to be definitively held. And he was saying it's wrong. Like, no, that would be obvious, you know, heresy there. Mm -hmm. it, he's not doing that. Something hadn't been defined and he was doing it just as a private theologian, not as like a papal bull or something of more authority going out to the whole church. Right. So either way, I think that standard story would not count against um, the doctrine of papal infallibility. Here's where the curveball and the fun part comes in, because we had a guest uh, about a month ago, Chris Plants, on the show, and he gave a potential alternative account. And he said that we might historians may have gotten this issue wrong. And I have not been able to verify this, but I just wanted to propose it as a, a possible idea and then and maybe just get your quick thoughts. And then we'll we'll ask the listeners if they know any sources or they can find sources on this. I would love to go further. But he says and I have to ver I can um agree with Chris in this much. When I searched articles about Pope John the 22nd, I was like looking for this. 
I could not find anyone actually quoting his words. No one actually quoted his homilies or quoted him in saying that he taught that the souls don't see God at their death, the purified souls. It was just kind of this, they were just saying that, no, he did teach this and we know this is wrong. And so that was a problem. But what Chris is saying is he questions whether people actually understood him correctly. And you, we know, at least, you know, in, in our modern era, I mean, heck, and, you know, Jimmy Aiken, this is like 30% of his job, you know, when it comes to Pope Francis and homilies and teachings, and he's clarifying and helping people understand that sometimes, would you agree, oh, yeah. Matt, that sometimes, <laughs> sometimes laymen can misunderstand papal statements? Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, you know, we at least live in an era where it's it's verifiable. So we do have the source material at our fingertips, which, you know, guys like John Twenty Second would have, you know, uh, would have given their left arm for. Right. Um, but I mean, you know, back then there was, I mean, there was all sorts of bad actors and, and people who were, I mean, it's the same as now. Everybody, you know, money, pleasure, power, honor, you know, it makes people do crazy things. Well, let so, me just keep going though. Let me keep yeah, going though. It, yeah. and I'll, I'll get your full, th- I'll give you a chance to give your full thoughts on this. Cause so th- there's people who misunderstand the Pope. So maybe back then the layman just misunderstood what he was teaching in his homilies. And maybe he was trying to teach in a nuanced way, the same position of St. Thomas Aquinas, which does say that after, you know, those who die purified will see God. But because we don't yet have our bodies, we don't, when, then at the end of time, when we get our bodies back, our glorified bodies, we have a different or perhaps a fuller experience or experience a fuller expression of the beatific vision or experience it in a different way than when we don't have our bodies. And so perhaps he was making a nuanced point that those who die do see God, but they don't see him in the same full way as when we do get our bodies back and live in the new heavens and the new earth. So perhaps this is Plants' hypothesis, and I'm, I'm looking for a source. If people can verify, it's great. Um, but maybe he was just misunderstood. And either way, we did get it cleared up with his successor. But I'm curious, have you ever heard that and any initial thoughts on it? No, until you told me about it, I, I had never heard that before. But I mean, it, it does seem plausible. So one, uh, the guy canonized St. Thomas Aquinas, so he had to be you know pretty familiar with that. He doesn't seem like the type, uh, like there was lots of ambitious and self-seeking popes out there who are throughout history who you know would do something like this. John XXII doesn't really seem like the kind of guy who would do this. Um, he seems like a pretty well-intentioned guy. And then also, I mean, if the fact that he wrote on it beforehand, and then also the fact that it wasn't defined, that he said, you know, theologians are still are still free to, you know, kind of explore this issue. It's not like women's ordination, where John uh, John Paul II said the door is closed. Boom. I mean, there's no further discussion. People can keep discussion all they want, but we're not. It's decided, right? So this, I mean, something similar might be St. Thomas Aquinas misunderstood the, the Immaculate Conception. St. Thomas Aquinas held a false belief of the Immaculate Conception, but that wasn't dogmatically defined. It was something where we were still kind of, you know, exploring around the issue and the whole thing, right? So, yeah, I think it's totally reasonable. And if you just, like, look at it on its on its face, um, it does make sense that, you know, on the one hand, sure, once we, we reach heaven and we're perfected and our souls are perfected, you know, there's, in a certain sense, there's nothing more perfect that we can attain, right? Because we're, we're there with God, we're there with all of our ancestors and, and you know the, the souls of the just who have done for us all that but at the same time we only have our souls what happens when we get when we get our body i mean i guess it's probably just the limitation of the human mind um, that we can't wrap our minds around it but it does seem to make sense that there would be something different like you said something more full 
Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if there's any Latin junkies out there who have access to, um, John, as you said before, before we started recording a seminary library or the Vatican secret archives, I don't know if <laughs> John, the 22nd's letters still exist. I mean, they're 700 years old, but. Well, Matt Sewell, it has been uh, a great having you on the podcast. Pleasure going through uh, council of Nicaea, Pope John, the 22nd. Thanks again for joining us on the classical theism podcast. Just let the listeners know where can they go to find out more about your work and then we'll say goodbye. Thanks again for having me on. This is this is great. Um, folks can find me the, the, the podcast specifically at thepopecast.fm. So the it's you know p o p e c a s t thepopecast.fm. Um, I promise there will be part two on John Paul II soon, uh, even though it's it's pushing two months since the last episode came out. But uh, yeah, in between new episodes, we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, um, all with the handle thepopecast. Uh, we've got all sorts of pub quotes and, and vintage pictures of, of past popes, though let's be honest, it's mostly John Paul and Benedict because um, who doesn't love a great picture of John Paul and Benedict? And then uh, lastly, folks can also support the podcast, uh, make sure we can continue turning out um, those similar to John uh, by becoming a patron. So it's just patreon.com slash the podcast. Yeah.